Good morning and welcome everybody. You are listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across the country, wherever you are. We've got something very, very special for you this morning. Uh, today in, in New South Wales, it is a public holiday, the Queen's Birthday weekend, so I hope you're all having a wonderful weekend. Uh, we're also on holiday too, believe it or not. Right now, uh, you know, I, I, I did this, I did this last week. So, um, look, the point is everyone needs a holiday and we're taking holiday too, but you're not missing out on the breakfast show with Lyle and Liam. Of course, this morning we're going to go back in time. We're going to give you a special double dose of Encounter with God. Uh, so make sure you stay tuned for that. That's going to be coming up very, very shortly. Um, but yeah, I hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Keep safe. Hopefully, uh, as restrictions ease on the, uh, as, as we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, you're all getting to see family and having a good time over the weekend. So, um, yeah, I just pray that God's with you during this time and I pray that you're having a very, very good weekend and, uh, yeah, enjoy the show we've got for you today. Coming up next though, we've got My Lighthouse by The Rend Collective. Wrestling in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Whoa, you are the peace in my troubled sea. In the silence, you won't let go. Your truth will hold Your great love will lead me through You are the peace in my troubled sea Whoa, you are the peace in my troubled sea to show
right there was Ren Collective with My Lighthouse. Now we're going to move on to the double dose of Encounter with God. Here we go. Getting into our Bible study to, for today, we are looking at, uh, we're going to spend this uh, the next uh, three months looking at different ways to study and understand the Bible. Today we're looking at the Bible as history. Now this is something that fascinates me, particularly when you read ancient documents. The ancients did not record history. Even people like, um, and his name has just gone blanked out of my mind at the moment, but we'll be back in just a moment. But the Greek who is called the father of history is also called the father of lies. And um, I've got another Greek name in my is head. One of the, the right one won't come out. Is it one of the Greek gods? No. No, okay, never mind. I'm Greek historian. And so when you read his histories... Aristotle? Aristotle, um, not Aristotle. Oh, okay. um, You've got Xenophon. Xenophon's right up there as well. Uh, but these guys, you know, they did not record history. They, they wrote movie scripts. They wrote about victories, but they did not record history. If you go back further from them, uh, and, and these were the first guys to ever record defeats of their own people, of any kind, but, you know, strongly flavoured it their direction uh, in a way that, you know, would would suit their narrative. Yep. You know, you read read about the, uh, the 300 at Thermopylae, which was a crushing defeat for the Greeks by the Persians, and it has always been passed down to us as being, you know, a heroic story. That's because we have the Greek version of it because the Persians didn't really bother writing much about it because they're like, yeah, we went to Thermopylae, we, we smashed the Spartans and killed their king. That's pretty much what they wrote. Uh, whereas the Greeks turned it into a heroic tragedy and wrote a movie script about it. There you go. Uh, in, in, in vivid colour compared to what had been done in the past. You know, the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians, you know, they just wrote about victories and, and the Egyptians, you know, you've got... Um, You've you've got famous pharaohs who fight these you know incredible battles, and go back and carve on their temple walls about their great victories that they won. When you actually cross-reference the accounts, you find out that they were lucky to escape with their lives. Yeah, but they're not going to say that, and they're not certainly not going to say that to posterity. They're going to be like, yeah, we went up there and we absolutely smashed the Assyrians, and we did this and we did that and we did the other. And it's like, yeah, well, you actually were very, very lucky to get out of there alive. Um, and you know, it's quite different. Reality is quite different from what is written down. This is where the Bible is very, very different. Mm. The ancients recorded victories. Yeah. The Bible records history. Mm. And when you come to the Bible, pretty much the very first story that you have is the story of a defeat. Yeah. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you know. Gives a backstory for it and, and it, it, the that's whole right. plot line. Your creation story, which you could say, well, that's a, that's a victory story, but that's a backstory to the first great defeat. Yep. Um, the reason that that story is being told is so that we can talk about a defeat, a defeat of God, a defeat of God's people, a defeat of you know Adam and Eve, a defeat of humanity. It's a defeat. And then this is a theme that you're going to find that runs from one end of the Bible to the other, and it's a theme that really does focus on the weakness and the corruption 
of human nature. Mm. So your other histories are going to exalt human nature and they're going to teach you that, you know, God is within you, you need to get in touch with, uh, you know, you need to be true to yourself. Uh, we don't need to be true to ourselves. We need to be true to Jesus Christ. Um, but the Bible will teach you, you know, you've, you've got to, you've, you've got to, the solution to life, to happiness, to harmony, the Bible will teach you is found outside of yourself in Jesus Christ. Outside of the Bible, you're going to find that the solution to all of those things is within yourself and within what you do as a human being, your actions as a human being. It, it does draw a very, very big contrast with every other ancient document and every other ancient religious document. So if you look at uh, Eastern religions, if you look at Buddhism or, or Hinduism, for example, that have come down to us in modern times, but if you particularly look back you know, at the ancient ones that no longer exist, you're going to find that these are cyclical religions. Mm. The Bible and the Abrahamic religions are linear religions. And so you're going to find that the Bible you know, begins with perfection, moves on to sin, finds the solution in Jesus Christ, the consummation of that in the second coming, and goes back to perfection again. Yep. It's this small dip into pain and suffering that the world, that the universe has to have so that it can never, ever have a, it again. A bit of reality. Yeah, well, a, 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 an alternative reality. Yeah. Because reality for the universe really is sinlessness or reality for us something that we can relate to yeah so the bible is going to tell the story that is real to us but it's going to tell it in a linear fashion you move from this point to this point you move from where the problem comes in to where the problem is solved and the bible story is the story of that whole process of how the problem is solved you look at other religions and you're going to find that it is cyclical so you start at this point and you cycle through and you're back again. And then you cycle through and you're back again. And everything in nature, you know, is seen to have this, you know, this life, death, birth cycle, etc., etc. And so the religions that were nature-based rather than God-based came to be cyclical religions rather than linear religions. And as a cycli cyclical religion, they have an environment in which sin and pain and suffering actually lasts for eternity. Mm. Whereas the Bible view is that there's going to be time when there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more tears, any of those kind of things. It's going to be gone forever. Um, sadly, a lot of paganism has crept into Christianity. Mm. And one of the areas in which it has crept into Christianity, of course, is the uh, doctrine of eternal hellfire. The Bible doesn't teach eternal hellfire. The Bible teaches hellfire. But the Bible says that you'll be turned to ash. Last time I checked ash, nobody was, who'd been turned into ash was still alive. That's what the Bible says. And we could look at many passages on that. Malachi chapter 4 is, uh, just read the whole chapter, there's like, what, six verses in it? Uh, it's very, very clear on this subject. And so we have this cyclical view 
of eternal hellfire that has crept into Christianity, whereas if you choose not to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you say, no, I don't want Jesus as my friend, then Jesus is going to set you on fire. You're going to burn, and you're going to burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, eternally with no end. And, you know, every now and then you just sort of get turned over and roasted on the other side and then turn over and roasted on the next side. And that's how it's going to continue for you um, as somebody who chooses that you really don't want Jesus as your friend, according to you know the pagan traditions that have entered into Christianity, um, as, as you know, this is all as a result of pagan influence. Mm. So this is what we've got: we have a linear versus cyclical, and the Bible is linear. The Bible takes us from perfection to perfection. It takes the Bible takes us from paradise lost to paradise restored. We're going to look at some of the key moments within that as we work our way through this particular Bible study. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at this morning, in particular, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because nothing more clearly illustrates the linear nature of how God is dealing with the sin problem, and that it will be gone forever than the resurrection of Jesus. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Okay, so that was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What have you got for us there, please, Liam? Uh, Which verse? Uh, Let's start in verse 3 to 5. Let's look at Paul's testimony here in relationship to the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 3. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Okay, so this is an interesting statement by Paul. Why why would we trust this statement right here? What evidence do we have within that passage that we should trust this statement? Uh, that people saw him. Okay, but the, but if I'm going to play the devil's adv- advocate here for a moment, I could say, yes, he is saying that uh, there were eyewitnesses, but why would we believe those eyewitnesses? Why would we believe his account that those eyewitnesses were actually a real thing? I mean, he's writing about it. He's writing about it, you know, to the city of Corinth. He could be in any part of the world. He could be vastly separated from those people at this particular time. He he makes a statement here within this passage that gives authenticity to it. The scriptures said it would happen. Yeah, and other people are going to say, yeah, but we have our own scriptures. I'm playing the devil's advocate here. I give you a hard time. Uh, and so, you know, you, you, your Buddhists will say, well, we've got our scriptures. Your Hindus would say the same. Uh, the Muslims would say we've got the Quran. There's something here that gives this a ring of authenticity. Why would we believe the fact that he is claiming there are eyewitnesses? If you were somebody who was alive at this particular time and you were skeptical but you were motivated to find out whether this is true or not, there's something right here within the passage. Which bit? Okay, so here's what you're going to find. The Bible says, or Paul says, the majority of whom are still alive to this day. So here's the thing. If you are going to create a legend, 
You do not create a legend within the lifetime of the people who are a part of that legend. Yeah. You can't do that. That's impossible. Because if it's just myth, well, then, you know, you've got all these people who are actually eyewitnesses against that myth. Mm. Paul here is writing within a very short period after the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 40 years at the very, very most, most likely, you know, 20 years from the, um, the time that Jesus was resurrected. Yep. And he makes this statement. He's like, there's all these eyewitnesses, the majority of whom are still alive. In other words, what he's doing is he's throwing out there the challenge. If you don't believe me, if you think this is a legend or a myth that I'm speaking about, then you can go and personally interview... All, All of these, these eyewitnesses, more than 500 of them, and only a few of them have passed away. So there's maybe, you know, at the very least, there's going to be 450 of them. That's a lot of eyewitnesses who are going to give you corroborating evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. And this becomes really important because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to this concept that the Bible is presenting a linear message of salvation because Jesus is at the very center of that uh, linear message the Bible takes you from sin to the solution to sin which is the death of Jesus Christ which is meaningless without the resurrection of Jesus Christ mm. and so the resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes incredibly important to all of us Romans chapter 8 and verse well actually let's let's before we go there let's uh, while we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 go down to verse 51 to 55 because Paul begins this is sort of like a little sermon with a sermon. It's uh, a section within the book of uh, 1 Corinthians that takes you through to the end of the book. And it begins by talking about the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. How does he end this section? Okay, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever and we who are living will also be transformed for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal body bodies then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die this scripture will also be fulfilled death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting Okay, so the Bible moves us right the way through. Paul moves us right the way through from the uh, from the uh, from the resurrection of Jesus, from the crucifixion of Jesus, right through the way through to the second coming of Jesus, and tells this whole story of you know paradise lost to paradise restored. Really, that's what we're dealing with is the, is the is the story of the Bible. Now, moving back to the resurrection, I think we need to spend a little bit of time on this. Why do we as Christians believe in the resurrection? I mean, Paul gives this statement right here, and it certainly would be a very, very brave statement to make if the resurrection had not happened, because it could be very, very easily disproved. Mm. All you had to do at that time was to go to Palestine yeah. and to start tracing through every single person who claimed to be an eyewitness of Jesus and just interview them, and sooner or later you would know whether this was true or not. Let, yeah. Let's say there's 450 that are still alive, and, and that's a conservative estimate. But let's say that there's 450 out of the original 500 that are still alive. 
by the time you get finished interviewing them, you're going to know whether this is a real thing or not. Yeah. What other evidences do we have that this was actually a real event? You know, we often talk about the empty tomb of Jesus. So every other great religious leader has a tomb. Jesus has an empty one. Mm. There's no one there. What other evidences from history do you think we might have that that's an actual real event? Or do we just take it on faith? You know, do we believe it because we believe it because we believe it because we believe it? Well, I, it, the the resurrection of Jesus, it, it sort of, if Jesus hadn't have died, it would have proved that Jesus is human. Yeah, that's right. Which it did. It proved that Jesus is human. Jesus dying proved that he was human. Yes. But him raising from the dead proved that he was also God. That's right. And I, th- I don't. Th- what what point is there of a Messiah that isn't God? Yet yeah, none. Yeah. That, that isn't the Messiah. Which raises an interesting point as far as evidence for the resurrection goes because really the issue that comes out of that is the, is the evidence from cause and effect. Mm. Uh, in this case, Christianity is the effect. Yep. Christianity is the world's largest religion. Christianity within 300 years was the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. Uh, the ancient mystery religions of Egypt and Greece and you know France and Scandinavia within you know 500 years had vanished entirely the middle east mm. you know gone they, they just ceased to exist as christianity took over and that is the effect that's a massive effect that's an effect that is just off the charts whenever you have an effect there is a cause yeah and you have to find out what that cause is you have to have something of incredible magnitude to create an effect that is that large. No other religious leader has created an effect that, that, that is that big. Mm. And in that short of a space of time, mm. um, there have certainly been some very influential religious leaders, you know, Confucius and Buddha and so forth, but no other religion can match the rise and the spread and the influence of Christianity. Mm. So if you are going to have an effect that is that big, you have to have a monumental cause. Mm. And one Jewish carpenter preaching for three and a half years is just not a big enough cause yeah. to explain it. The resurrection, on the other hand, yeah, that's kind of rare. That's something that you don't see happening on a regular basis. That is something that I'll probably uh, hazard a guess that you've never seen take place. I certainly have not seen it not, take place. Not particularly, no. And that is a cause that is big enough to create an effect as big as Christianity. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's definitely a line of, uh, of evidence there that is very much worth uh, pursuing in relationship to the reality of the coming of Jesus and the fact that he gave his life for us and that this was central to his plan for dealing with the problem of sin. We're going to come back and talk about this a little bit more. There's some other great things out there. If you want to give us uh, chip in with your thoughts, give us a call, 1-800-324-843, or text us on 0491-064-669. We have this hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming of the Lord. 
this faith that Christ alone imparts. Faith in the promise of his word. We believe the time is here when the nations far and near shall awake and shout and sing Christ is King. We have this hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming of the Lord. Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking about the resurrection of Jesus as part of the linear story of... Paradise lost to paradise restored that the Bible gives, which is different from the cyclical view that other uh, major world, world religions follow, where you simply cycle through the same kind of thing for the rest of eternity, good, bad, cycle, um, etc. Uh, we were talking about the resurrection a little bit earlier, and Paul's testimony in relationship to the resurrection, and how he carries that testimony through to the second coming of Jesus, which, of course, is where Paradise Restored comes in. But that resurrection does give us a glimpse, gives a small glimpse of what it is, uh, what, what the, um, of, of the fact that we can trust what the Bible says in relationship to the second coming of Jesus. Okay, so this is something else that's interesting. We were talking about the Bible as history before and how that all ancient documents outside of the Bible, whether they are historical or religious, record victories. They don't record history. There's no record of history from the ancient world. There is just a record of victories. Herodotus was the guy I was looking for. I had Hippocrates stuck in my head, and I knew that was wrong. Herodotus was the father of history, otherwise known as the father of lies, because he was kind of a movie script writer rather than a historian. Yeah. Anyway... We find that, um, coming back to the story of the empty tomb, the first account of the resurrection and the empty tomb of Jesus comes from probably Mark's gospel. Mm. And then you have it in the other gospels as well. And what's significant about the story is its simplicity. And so when you read, um, if you read a myth, you know, a legend, for instance. These are always going to be quite complex and detailed, and you're going to have, you know, the wild and the weird and the wacky that is going to, you know, read read the Odyssey or something like that, and you've got, you know, one-headed, one-eyed monsters yeah. and, you know, all kinds of all kinds of strange and weird things that are happening, and that's because this is a myth. It is a legend. Read any legend, you're going to have the same kind of... Uh, issues that are coming on down through that particular legend. When you read the story of the resurrection of Jesus, mm. it's very simple, it's very factual, and it lacks legendary development and embellishment. So a lot of legends have a basis somewhere in history. Mm. But somebody's taken a story and they've just sort of added to it and then they've you know, repeated that story. It's been passed down orally for several generations, typically, um, by the time that, you know, by storytellers. And storytellers 
You know, the art of storytelling, you know, it's a true science. Yeah, yeah. And when you're telling story, you have to, telling a story, you, you're painting a, a word picture in people's minds. Mm. As you're painting that word picture in people's minds, when you tell the story and you're building that word picture, there are going to be elements that you're going to add to it to make it a picture. The next time it is told by, say, for instance, you know, if you're the if you're the campfire storyteller and your son takes over, he's going to add his flavour to it. The neighbouring tribe's going to hear it from you, from you, and they're going to add their flavour to it. And within a very short space of time, you have this whole legendary development. You have the, all of these embellishments that are coming in from each different storyteller, and that's going to happen before the first time it actually gets written down. Mm. Once it's written down, it is codified to a certain extent because when it gets written again and again and again and again and again and again and again, and again, once again it's going to be embellished, but at a slower pace. And so we find this with all ancient stories. We find huge discrepancies, you know, in, in one person's version of a legend compared to, you know, somebody's, somebody else's version of exactly the same legend. Yeah. And when you read the Bible... There is no great discrepancies. There is no legendary development. There is no embellishment. It's a very simple story. Um, it's a story that is told in a historical manner. And it is codified, as in written down and placed in a codified form, in the lifetime of the people who were actually there and saw it take place. It's codified in the lifetime of the people who were eyewitnesses of the event. And if you, you know, if Dr. Luke, you know, who's, who's writing about it some years later, if he writes it down wrong, there's going to be people there that are going to correct him. There's likely probably, you know, four or five hundred people around the place that can correct him and say, no, you've written it down wrong. It didn't happen like that. This is how it happened. And, uh, you know, Dr. Luke specifically um, states how he acted as an investigative journalist to actually find out the truth of everything that he records in his particular gospel. And so the simplicity of it adds credibility yeah. to the story of the resurrection of Jesus. One of the other things that adds a tremendous amount of credibility to the story of Jesus is who it was that found that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that the tomb was empty. Remember who that was? The The... the Mary's. Yes, it was the women. The women, yeah. Okay. Any thoughts on why that might be a source of credibility for the story? Mm. Almost. I, I, I think it's almost because maybe back then it wasn't. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the right answer right there. Because back then, in a court of law, if you're in a court of law... Um, a woman's testimony could not could never be accepted in a court of law. Yeah. Uh, if you had somebody who committed murder and it was witnessed by a hundred women. Yeah. And no men, then you had no eyewitnesses. Yeah. And so this is credibility from embarrassment, basically. Mm. There is no way in a million years, if you were creating a legend, would you have women being the first people to be eyewitnesses of what took place. Yeah. The only way that you would ever admit to such a thing is if that thing 
actually happened if it actually took place. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's credibility. It is evidence for from embarrassment. Okay, some of the uh, other evidences that we have. Let's 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 think about the tomb that was empty. What did the disciples believe about the tomb? Did the disciples believe the tomb was empty? Y- yes. Yes. Because they believed Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Yep. Uh, what about the enemies of Jesus? Did they believe the tomb was empty? Uh, yeah, they did. They did. Because they paid the soldiers a large amount of money to spread a rumor that the body had been stolen. Yeah. Which is a very plain admission. The body is not there. Yeah. So both those who believe in Jesus Christ and his most avowed enemies. Yeah. They all claimed that the, they all claimed the tomb is empty. Yeah. They just have different stories as to how it ended up being empty. And but they all the claimed that it was empty. Yeah. And it's a bit of a stretch to imagine that, you know, you've got a watch, which is a hundred men. Um, of 100 soldiers, you know, that is all asleep and mm. the disciples get past all of them and their lives are on the line the next day if they sleep on duty. Yeah. You know, Roman soldiers didn't sleep on duty. Yeah. They'd be executed the next day if they did and all of them slept and the disciples were that good that they could sneak past. You know, I challenge anybody to roll back a massive stone and cart off a body in the middle of the night without waking somebody up. That's just too much of a stretch by a very, very uh, long distance. Anyway, we're going to listen to the story of Jesus, uh, this time in song with Alan Jackson bringing us I Love to Tell the Story. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know is true It satisfies my longings As nothing else can do I love to tell the story will be my theme and glory To tell the old, old story and his love I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the
tell the story will be my fame and glory to tell the old old story of Jesus and his love to tell the old old story of Jesus and his team here at Faith FM want to encourage you to share God's love with those around you, to stay positive and to stay connected in this virus season. Check on your neighbours, especially elderly neighbours as they may be unable to visit the shops or see family due to quarantines. A note under the door or a letter in the mailbox works too if you want to maintain your distance. Little things like this make a huge difference to someone who might be struggling to get by. You're listening to Faith FM. Positively different radio. This morning is Brock Goodall. Now, Brock is the chaplain for Avondale uh, University College. And, Brock, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, Brock, I understand that you're a fellow Tasmanian, is that right? Indeed. Tassie proud, my friend. Tassie proud. Absolutely. Go Tasmania. It is the promised land for all those who might not have <laughs> realised that yet. Um, and they do have a moat at the moment that they are not, that they are using. So, yeah, if you want to go down there and just check out whether Brock and I are right on that one, you'll have to wait a little bit. But, um, yeah, uh, Brock, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Now, Brock, you're the, uh, the chaplain for the Avondale University College, which is based in uh, Lake Macquarie area. So fairly mm-hmm. local to us here where we broadcast the breakfast show from. Uh, this is uh, a Seventh-day Adventist uh, university college that, that operates there. And when we first set up this interview, it was kind of earlier in the year when, you know, we were like, well, let's talk about what it means to be a university chaplain. Um, and now it's like, well, let's talk about what it's like to be a university chaplain without having students. <laughs> so things yep, have changed a the time, the landscape has certainly shifted. <laughs> so, 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 Brock, um, I do want to ask, just as we sort of begin here, how much has your, how radically has your job changed since coronavirus has hit? Yeah, great question. And look, honestly, it's, it's changed in a huge way, but at the same time, it hasn't. And I'll explain what I mean. So usually one of the things that we love, you know, working here um, at, at Avondale is when the students come back, the buzz is real because there's so much movement. There's this foot traffic. There's this, you know, vitality of having, you know, young people here all around. Like, it's phenomenal. So that whole setting has completely shifted now. Like, I'm here um, at my office at the moment, um, and there is no one here. <laughs> Even now, <laughs> this, this time in the morning, you usually see lecturers around and, you know, various stuff. And no, there's no one. Um, so it, it's a bit of a ghost town. But So in that respect, things have changed. But um, what hasn't is that obviously our need to care for our students and our staff remains, right? But obviously it's quite, you know, relatively straightforward to do pastoral care when you can physically meet with somebody. Uh, but now because of all of the restrictions, that ability to physically meet with people is out the window. So now the thing that presents itself is how do we do pastoral care for staff and students when isolation and restrictions are in place? 
Yeah, absolutely. So how does that, I mean, obviously we, we understand that, you know, a lot of people in ministry are relying heavily on Zoom. Is that your yeah. primary means of communication now? Yeah, big time. So Zoom is huge for us. So all of our meetings have obviously moved online to Zoom, but even now student catch-ups and connections uh, are now through Zoom, uh, which is interesting because you would think um, that, you know, students being younger would be completely ready to go and, and very, you know, up-to-date and ready to know exactly how to use Zoom. But it's interesting. A lot of our students are using this sort of a platform for the first time. So a lot of them have used things like um, video chat through Facebook Messenger or things like FaceTime. But yeah, Zoom, for us in the professional space, is definitely the way we're going. But for students, it's still very new and there's a lot of training that's happening. Um, so that now on uh, Tuesday, when classes officially kick back off formally online, they're ready to go and engage. Yeah, you know, if only we'd have been able to look into the future and all bought shares in Zoom before all this happened. But um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, you know, just even this morning, I noticed that a bunch of our transmitter sites are down because they rely on internet connections. And it seems that, that Zoom is just absorbing all of the uh, available uh, bandwidth that is out there. Now, um, okay, so one of the questions I wanted to ask is, how much has, okay, so you're obviously ministering to students and to staff as a chaplain. Mm. How much of the issues that people are dealing with have changed and in what ways have they changed before and after the mm. lockdown? Or is there no change? Huh. Good question. I mean, one of the things that first came out to me, so now we're uh, obviously a lot of our... so instead of doing, you know, like our Friday night programs that we usually have here on campus, um, now I'm recording um, devotionals and sending them out, you know, throughout the week to all of our students. And it's funny, I got a comment back from one of our typically distant students. Obviously, now all of our students are technically distant, but the ones that sort of started distance. And they said to me, now that everybody's on the same playing field, they said that now they actually feel like everybody else is part of the Avondale experience, if you know what I mean. Like, that's been a bit of a bit of an idea that, you know, you come physically on campus here to get an Avondale experience and, and that's where it comes from. You know, you can engage in student life and the spiritual life here on campus. But now we're all forced to communicate in a distant setting. Now our distant students are saying, okay, now I'm getting the Avondale experience too, which is really special because now we get to kind of dial up our intentionality moving beyond this crisis to say, how do we keep pastoral care going and be really effective for our distant students? Because it is really easy to forget about them because they're not physically here. So one of the issues that this has basically brought forth is to go, cool, this has given us an opportunity to be more effective and more intentional with our distance pastoral care. But in terms of the other issues that are going around, I mean, now the sense of isolation uh, and our mental health concerns are obviously going up. They were already there and already present. But now, I guess, in this time of restriction and isolation, the, the dial's really going up on that. So one of the things that we're being really mindful of is being very intentional with speaking into the fact that even though we're now remote and all in isolation, our counselling services on campus are still completely available. Um, we as chaplains now are really able to sort of speak into the fact that we do more than just Bible studies and, and prayer requests. Those things are critical and important, but we're also there just to chat to. So I think having that availability is working really well, but definitely one of the things that we're noticing is that the mental health sensitivity is definitely more present now, that's for sure. Do you find that those students who who have, you know, been doing distance education the whole way and have been a mm. part of that program are more resilient to the lockdown than those who have been an on-campus yeah. group and now gone into distance education? 
Yeah, I mean, just with speaking with the ones that I've spoken to that are distance students, yeah, this is this is no difference to them. You know, this is how they've they've typically done all of their study up to this point. They're used to having to study online and study remotely and join the remote sessions and not have other people around to keep them accountable. So this almost is business as usual for them, and that's why I think now because we're dialing up our presence in that virtual platform, now it's actually helping them feel even more included than what they did before. So yeah, totally business as usual for them in a big way, uh, but it has presented a really cool way to bring about a bit of unity between our on-campus and distance students. Now, you mentioned, you mentioned the chaplains there. You've got a bit of a team uh, that uh, works on chaplaincy at uh, Avondale? Yep. How many? How so many? we've got... Yeah, so we've got... Um, it, it's a diverse team in that we work at... Chaplaincy is part of our whole student life services here on campus. So the one that sort of runs that whole space uh, is our Director of Student Services, uh, so Jen Petrie, she's incredible. So she kind of has her, she's got a bunch of different roles and keeps her fingers in a lot of different pies, making sure that the whole overall student care is taken care of. And then there's me in the chaplaincy space who specifically works on that direct pastoral care with staff and students. Uh, we have another guy um, named Hayden who is our res manager and our our sports and recreation guy, and he's obviously looking after specifically the ones that are in dorms. We have a well-being officer, um, and her name is Renee, and her job is to basically walk through our female dormitories here on campus to make sure that they've got some presence. Because obviously me being the chaplain of male, uh, I can have access to our male dorms, but I can't have that same presence in our female dorms. So basically we've brought on another member to be able to help in that area, which is awesome. And then in addition to that, we have our well-being uh team which look after the counselling side of things. So they're the professionally trained counsellors that look after things that are a bit more, uh, that are outside the scope of just those chaplaincy uh, issues and conversation points. So it's a nice big team, but I love it because the, the campus here is really invested in, in caring. And that's just our Lake Macquarie campus too, and all of that is pretty well replicated on our city campus too. So the, the Avondale whole community is really invested in caring um, for our students, which is really cool. Yeah, that's fantastic, Brock. Hey, um, how, and, and, and I guess we're just sort of, you know, we're looking into the future here and we really have no idea, mm. but how much do you think that this is going to change things in the long mm. term? You've got all of these students that have now gone on to distance. Do you think that there's going to be a bunch of them that are going to like, you know, you're going to be like, you know what, I like distance, so I'm just going to stay with it? Or do you think those that have um, chosen the campus course have done so because that's what suits their learning style and as soon as it's available again they'll come back to it it's a really good question and i think in a big way like only time will tell like we said uh, because it's definitely interesting because a lot of people even myself i when i went to avondale many years ago i wanted to come on campus and because i thought that was just the option i didn't even really think that perhaps distance was an option for me. So now that all of our students are now essentially in this distant sector, now they'll have to ask the question, did this work for me? Um, can I do this? Do I still feel part of community? Uh, and they're, they're questions that they'll have to wrestle with. But I guess for us here on campus, what this has done for, for me in particular is really helped me to open my eyes to, to remind myself of, no, we do have distance people. And just because they're not physically here on campus, that doesn't mean that we can't partially care for them. So the thing that this will do for me and my space moving forward is to be conscious in everything we do of asking the question, okay, but how does this serve our distance students? So we've got a bunch of initiatives here for our on-campus students, but what can we always do to bring our distance students into the mix? So it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting in how that will actually roll out. Only time will tell, but it's definitely an exciting time anyway. 
Yeah, Brock, you mentioned that you the on-campus students. Are there still on-campus students at college at the moment? Yes, yeah, so and there's very few because um, before the, the essential lockdown that we're now in um, in New South Wales, um, our team tried to look forward and project where things were going. So basically giving our students time to say, hey, uh, before travel becomes a real tricky point, we really encourage you to go home. And then some directives came through, um, some advice came through to our senior leadership to basically say, okay, no, we need to, as best as possible, close our, our residential halls. And now we've got, I think off the top of my my head it's maybe 10 or 11 students that are either international or can't travel for whatever reason domestically so it's a small group uh but there there are still a couple of students here on campus so even the other day um because the question is how do you care for them when they're in isolation right yeah. so we uh myself and our well-being officer we bought some pizzas and kind of delivered them at the door and, and had a bit of a chat with some social distancing but yeah we've got a few students on here but yeah the absolute vast majority of um, have returned back home so currently, the the on campus experience isn't quite what everyone expected it to be. <laughs> Not at all. So if you're a first year this year and you you had some very clear expectations for what your year was going to look like, things have definitely changed. But yes, for us, I guess we want to make sure and be really intentional to be like, you know what? Just because we're in isolation, it doesn't mean that we can't still be community and have a really passionate and growing spiritual life. So we typically here on campus do something called Festival of Faith um, twice a year, and it's essentially our week of worship our our week of prayer and we're working towards over the next couple of weeks to be able to deliver something like that um obviously in a digital context so that our students and staff can still have those intentional weeks in place business as usual to a point but just shifted to our new context and that restriction and that sort of forcing of okay we have to think differently while this coronavirus crisis is is scary and it's unknown one of the good things that's come out of it for us is that now we get to be creative and reimagine what we can do so those first years that have covered and expecting an experience we can still deliver that and you know we can still care for them in a spiritual sense so yeah the creativity that's that's thriving in restriction it's yeah it's that side of things is good yeah, and I think this is one of the positive things that is coming out of the crisis is that we are learning, uh, we, we're learning new skills that right. we will not lose and we're learning That's new right. strategies that we also will not lose. And so we will come out the other end of this much stronger than what we went into it and much well equipped to, you know, deal with the broader society. Uh, I love what yeah. you're saying about, you know, the distant students feeling like they are a part of the system now and, yeah. and the, the, the chaplaincy team that you've got there, um, is being forced to create strategies that you'll mm-hmm. now be able to use, you know, forever um, that may not have been, you know, on the top of the priority list, but now they certainly are. And so I, I think this is I think this is good that we look at this as an opportunity uh, rather yeah. than just a, um, you know, j- just a, a lockdown, so to speak. Um, Absolutely. Brock, we want to thank you so much for uh, joining us here on the breakfast show this morning. Um, we have uh, we, we're kind of starting to run out of time now. I was going to ask another question, but um, we don't have enough time to uh, fit another one in. But it's been fantastic having you here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'd love to get you back on again sometime. No worries. Thanks for your time. It's been good fun. Good chatting. Fantastic. Thank you. That was Brock Goodall, uh, University uh, College University Chaplain, Avondale College University here in the Lake Macquarie area, and also in Sydney campus as well. This is BJ Thomas, where no one stands alone.
once I stood in the night with my head bowed low in the darkness as black as could be and my heart felt alone and I cried oh Lord don't hide your face from me hold my hand all the way every hour every day from here to the great unknown take my hand and let me stand where no one stands alone Like a king I may live in a palace so tall with great riches to call my own but I don't know a thing in this whole wide world that's worse than being alone Hold my hand all FM Radio, bringing you peace, hope and certainty in uncertain times. Bow down and worship 
Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience to death on a cross, suffering to give us life, conquering through sacrifice, and as they crucify, praise Father for give. Oh, what a mystery! and majesty bow down and worship for this is your God this is your God wisdom unsearchable